we quite frankly have too much news for you this evening. Since we last went live, the Ford report has been released, long awaited after a two-year delay. Britain has had its hottest temperature on record, and it wasn't just a little bit above the record. It, it blew the previous record out of the water. And of course, this afternoon, the race to become Britain's next prime minister is down to the final two. Any one of those would have been the lead story on an ordinary day. We've got to fit them all into one hour. In this task, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? Hi, Michael. Uh, I'm good. I'm just praying for a day where we're not going through a world historic event, frankly, at this point. Um, three is enough for one day. <laughs> I will be joined um, by Aaron Bastani to talk about the Ford Report story in particular because he's been he's been covering this for a long time now, knows more about it than, than almost anyone I can think of. It's official. Britain's next prime minister will either be the genius behind Eat Out to Help Out or the MP described by Dominic Cummings as, quote, as close to properly crackers as anybody I have met in Parliament. Yes, we are either looking at a PM Sunak or a PM Trust. Lord have mercy on us all. The two were selected this afternoon by Tory MPs as the candidates that will be put to members. So Rishi Sunak scored top with 137 MPs backing him. And then you can see the all-important second place went to Liz Truss. She was on 113. Penny Mordant knocked out on 105. Um, Liz Truss managing to overtake Mordant because presumably she won most of Kemi Badenoch's supporters. Badenoch was knocked out yesterday. After the result, Sunak made this appeal to members. I helped get this country through an incredibly difficult period over the last couple of years. I made sure that we supported those who needed our help at every step with interventions like the furlough. That's what people can expect from me going forward. And at a time of challenge, I think we need someone who's got the experience to do that. That's what I offer. But crucially, for our members, I'm also the person who can beat Keir Starmer in the next election, and that should be uppermost in their minds. This was Truss making a similar address. I'm not complacent at all. I am going to be working very hard over the next six weeks to put my case to Conservative Party members. What I believe is that lowering taxes, opening up opportunities is going to help us deliver the economic growth that Britain needs. And it's also going to help deliver us the next election. I can win against Keir Starmer in 2024. That's my message to our members right across the country. And it's Liz Truss who is the favourite to become Prime Minister. YouGov's most recent poll of party members has her way ahead against the former Chancellor. Truss is currently on 54% to Sunak's 35 As for the timescale for the next part of the contest, members are to receive ballots between the 1st and 5th of August before having a month to cast their votes. The winner will be announced on the 5th of September. Dahlia, are we under two months away from a Prime Minister Liz Truss? That is what it's looking like. And it, it's quite strange to me, you know, now that, that Sunak, now that it is between Sunak and Truss, I think that it, when you're looking at the Conservative Party base, it will likely be a, a Truss shoe-in. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, you know, last week when Penny Morden looked like she was kind of on top and we were discussing what that would look like, I said that Morden is probably the greatest threat to Starmer because she in a general election, that is, because she represents the popular parts of Johnson's program, which obviously he never delivered on, and neither would Penny Mordaunt. But that paying lip service to infrastructure investment, to 
green industrial revolution, to green jobs, to, to leveling up. These are all the kind of the things that I think got Johnson over the line by quite a way in um, 2019. But she didn't come in the sort of chaotic and unstable and entitled package that Johnson came in. Liz Trust is like the exact opposite. She represents solely uh, the most intolerable elements of the Johnson premiership. The buffoonishness, the unseriousness, the commitment to nothing but her own ambition, the overfocus on the most cringy optics, all of the, the, the most superficially awful things about Boris Johnson she represents, and but without paying lip service to the more popular policy positions that, that won Johnson that landslide. And the fact that we are getting, again, the worst of both worlds here, it really lays bare just how obscene it is that this will be the third prime minister in a row that has been handpicked by a constituency of people who seem to really buy into this kind of politics. Now, obviously, any prime minister is initially chosen by their party, but this is the third time that we have had a total crisis in government where there is total lack of confidence both inside and outside of parliament in the system of governance, in the, in the way that we are being governed. And the decision of what happens next is going to a group of people that seem to be removed from some of the most basic notions of reality. I think Ash was completely right. And it becomes very stark when you're looking at the potential of a trust premiership when she said that this isn't democracy, this is just elite parlor games. And with the cost of living crisis, with climate breakdown, with further spikes in the, in the coronavirus infections, that is having deadly consequences for the rest of us. When you mentioned Ash, I was expecting you to read out her tweet from today, which I really liked, which was, Liz Truss, God bless her, has the demeanor of someone who's accidentally scoffed an edible and is trying to make it through a workplace appraisal, which I thought was very good. I think lots of Tory MPs are worried that they are going to have someone who just comes across as a complete weirdo as prime minister. Sticking with the theme of Liz Truss, someone who's been writing about her as PM this week is Dominic Cummings. On his Substack, he's said, Boris is supporting Truss. Why? One, he thinks it's the best way to stop Sunak. And two, he knows Truss is mad as a box of snakes and is thinking, there's a chance she blows. There's another contest and I can return. So he, he thinks he could be in charge. And the post was written before and the race was whittled down to two. Cummings said this on paper, Sunak ought to beat either Penny Mordaunt or the human hand grenade, Truss, but a lackluster, cautious campaign could let one of them in. If this happens, the Tory party could easily be destroyed. And with the human hand grenade, she may catastrophically escalate the war. Remember, she has defined the goal as pushing Russia out of Crimea, which, if seriously attempted, would be seen by the vast majority of Russians, including anti-Putin Russians, as an attempt to destroy Russia and could lead to nuclear weapons. So, Dalia, I mean, the obvious upside of a Liz Truss premiership is that I think if she becomes their leader, they will lose the next election. And however unenthusiastic I'm about Keir Starmer, I prefer a Labour government to a Tory government. But the worry is the damage she could cause to us all in the interim. Now, there could be a couple of years between now and that general election. She seems like the candidate who's most likely to do something that could spark a nuclear war. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, this was 
a dynamic that we have sat through many times, um, particularly with a Trump presidency in the US and Johnson premiership in, in the UK. For me, though, the, the other part of this is her economic agenda. You know, she promises to cut taxes on day one of becoming prime minister, which is just so catastrophically cruel to working class people in this country. It is absolutely cruel as we are facing energy bills going up by a further 65% in October, you know, meaning the average household bills are going to be over £3,000 a year, depending on, you know, normal usage to be talking about tax cuts. You know, that is something that is going to directly benefit the rich because no amount of tax cuts on working class people and the poorer people in this country is going to compensate for certainly not any tax cuts that Liz Truss will be delivering. It's going to compensate for the loss of real time wages, uh, for the the spike in the cost of living and food and energy, etc. That is not going to put a dent into what is being lost by working class people. It's simply going to fatten the cushion that the rich are going to be falling on during this time. And to, to have that at the forefront of your economic agenda just shows me where your priority lies. And in fact, what we need are obviously tax increases on the rich, which can then be put back into the economy in the form of subsidies and in the form of support for working class people so that they can, you know, if you're going by a capitalist ideology, you know, we're not even talking about changing the economic system even within the rules of the current game, to be putting more money into people's hands that are then going to go and buy things and spend that money in the economy rather than offshoring it or putting it into investment funds that means that we're never going to see it come back into the economy. But Liz Trust is going in exactly the opposite direction. So that is, of course, you know, a, a, one of the few promises that I think she actually will try and fulfill uh, and is incredibly concerning to me. But I also think that it's really important here to to not let Rishi Sunak get away with looking somewhat moderate in the face of Liz Truss. Of, you know, this is not a center of the road, sensible option. Rishi Sunak, particularly if we're going to, you know, we can talk about his economic policy all day. But if we're going to talk about the fact that, you know, the UK is in an almost unprecedented heat wave right now, that. He, his, one of his opening positions as part of his leadership pitch was to ban onshore wind farms, uh, not to mention his previous support for continuing the building of fossil fuel projects. This is also an incredibly extreme and eccentric is too kind of a word, but let's just stick with an extreme free market fundamentalist position represented by Rishi Sunak. It's just coming across in a slightly more measured media slick way. And and the the fact that it's down to people with these positions at this moment, um, when the economic crisis, the climate crisis is being felt so sharply, just shows us how far right the needle of our political culture has moved. Both candidates are to the right of Boris Johnson ideologically. I mean, you know, potentially Rishi Sunak is less sort of incompetent and, and more professional than Boris Johnson, but I do think he is, you know, more ideologically a factorite. So we are going to be going further to the right, it seems, whoever wins, which is pretty sad. One thing that I've just thought about, which is interesting, um, which is, you know, on your tax cutting point, Dahlia, is it could be that that ends up being somewhat permanent, even if she is only prime minister for two years, because looking at the Labour front bench as they are, if Liz Truss cuts all of these taxes, including, you know, corporation tax, which definitely shouldn't be cut, are the Labour Party going to say, we're going to 
reverse that. We're going to actually increase taxes. We're going to increase taxes on the rich because everything I've heard so far is they're terrified to do anything like that. They seem pretty ready to say, we are not going to change tax and spending at all, you know, a kind of new labor type claim. So, so it could be the case that a sort of lame duck Liz Truss comes in, lowers taxes, loses an election, and then Labour are too scared to, to put those taxes back up. And, you know, I'm not as worried about borrowing money as some people in the Conservative Party are, or some people on the, the Labour front bench claim they are. But we do need to be taxing the rich to properly fund our public services. And so cutting taxes right now isn't really the best idea. And yeah, as I say, I don't think Labour are putting forward a strong enough alternative. We've been running a fundraiser recently to expand our base of supporters to 10,000. And I am absolutely delighted to be able to say that we have now hit that target. Thank you so much. We've gone from 6,000 to 10,000 supporters, which is, you know, we, we are so delighted about that. has put us on a much more sustainable footing than we were at the beginning of the fundraiser. So thank you so much if you were an existing supporter or if you have become a new supporter during this fundraiser. We really, really do appreciate it. Let's go straight to our next story. Money-saving expert Martin Lewis has released a direct message to the candidates to be the next Tory leader and our next Prime Minister. It's mainly focused on energy prices. Let's take a look. This is a warning video. The winter coming is going to be bleak. I believe unless action is taken we are facing a potential national financial cataclysm. As individuals, you need to be aware of that. So you can take, if possible, and to be honest, it's not always possible, preventative action yourself. Yet more so, the Conservative Party leadership candidates, one of whom will soon become our Prime Minister, need to know how stark things will be on the day they take office. So far, the debate seems to have mostly ignored the fact we are sitting on a financial time bomb. On the 1st of October, and this is a strong prediction because it's based, the 1st of October cap, on wholesale prices from February to mid-August, so we're most of the way through that. But, but the awful, sickening news is it's now predicted to rise 65% again, taking the bill for somebody on typical use to £3,240 a year. And that may be a conservative estimate because it keeps going up. Now, we'll know the exact number by the end of August. And that means that on the 5th of September, when our new Prime Minister is scheduled to take office, the direct debits will already be increasing by 65%. Someone who pays £100 a month now will start to pay £165 a month. Somebody who pays £200 a month now will start to pay £330 a month. And it doesn't end there. The price cap on the 1st of January, not quite a stronger prediction, but it's likely to go up 4%, taking the bill to £3,360 pounds a year for someone on typical use. And then in April, and we are getting into crystal ball territory, but in April, when it was thought we might start to see prices dropping, no. Now the prediction is they'll stay flat or only drop a few percent, meaning next April we'll still be paying on typical use over a thousand pounds a year more than we are now. This winter, we're going to need warm spaces. 
Public buildings, local councils, universities and libraries will need to open their doors and invite people in to keep warm because they can't afford to put their own heating on. And to the Conservative Party candidates, you need to understand the level of feeling out there. When I've talked about this on social media, and I have a decent following, and people's eyes are opened, the biggest response is actually people suggesting civil unrest, primarily in the form of mass non-payment. And I think that unrest is becoming a plausible outcome unless we see you get a handle on this. That's the second time we've, we've shown you a clip of Martin Lewis talking about the potential for mass unrest. He's clearly tapped into some real, real opposition to the government and opposition to these, these price rises. I should say, as, as well as what Martin Lewis said there, I was listening to a, an interview of him today on the BBC. He was clarifying um, because they asked him, obviously, about, you know, you will have seen Rishi Sunak keep saying he's promised or is delivering um, £1,200 to a third of households, the poorest households, to deal with these energy price increases. Martin Lewis is saying that only covers that first increase. It doesn't cover the next 60% increase. And obviously, you know, as we talk about on this show all the time, it, it, it definitely won't cover people who are getting 15%, 25% rent increases if they're living in the private rental sector. And you know, if it's all being eaten up by those energy rises, it's not going to help you pay for food, which is 10% extra if you're not getting a comparable pay rise. Dahlia, I want to ask you about the contents of that message and whether you think Eva Listras or Rishi Sunak will listen. No, of course not, because if they would listen, they wouldn't have been in the running to be leader of the Tory party. It is the job of the Conservative Party to not only cushion the rich from crisis, which obviously they do by shifting the shock of crisis onto working class people, But it's actually the job of the Conservative Party to use those moments of crisis in order to further consolidate the interests of the rich, which we've already seen in the leadership campaigns of Truss and Sunak, which both commit to tax cuts before they commit to anything else, essentially. And so, I mean, there is an argument to be made that also preventing riots is also in the interests of the upper class. But I think there is a sort of very solid uh, hegemony within the Tory party that that doesn't happen here. Whether or not we would be proved wrong, they will be proved wrong is in the hands of the people of this country. And I think that Martin Lewis does really important work here by actually making it very clear to his very wide audience that these are political choices, that the economy is not this self-contained force of nature Uh, that we all have to individually protect ourselves against, even though I think historically he has been more inclined towards that way of approaching economic issues like austerity and the 2008 financial crisis. And that has been very useful um, for for a lot of people. And I think it's been a really important shift in the, the public discourse, because even when you look in other parts of Europe, which, you know, these are not socialist states. These are states that are completely and utterly committed to neoliberalism. But even within these states, you are seeing some semblance of support, whether it's through subsidized public transport in Germany or whether it's in the form of uh, cutting tax on on energy, etc. And of course, because the issue here is not only energy, but also the knock-on effects of energy increases. So food is going up, food prices are going up, etc. But I really hope that this will be a politicizing moment uh, for Lewis and, and many other people to realize that 
in order to get the conservatives, who are unfortunately the government that we have right now, to concede into making those different political choices, they will have to be pushed into that. And that isn't going to come from just giving them the evidence or making a well-oiled argument. It's actually going to have to come from a demonstration of political power. That's going to look like the worker strikes that we are seeing, you know, cross-class industrial action, which is set to take place throughout the summer. But also, I think the withdrawal of paying bills is a really important part of that. This is something that we've actually seen throughout the world. If you listen to the first episode of Planet B, which is the Navara Media Climate Justice podcast, we actually talked to someone in the Philippines who, who told us about when the privatization of the energy companies took place, in, in particularly in rural parts of the Philippines, which hiked up energy prices and actually made energy supply more unreliable. Energy workers went on strike, but also in solidarity with that, and also in protest against those increasing bills, consumers stopped paying their bills. And there was actually some beautiful solidarity between energy workers who helped to reconnect local consumers to electric, to electric energy, uh, to renewable energy when they were being cut off by their energy suppliers for not paying their bills. And that succeeded. It, it succeeded in getting some concessions from the relationship between, from the, the partnership between government and the energy companies. So this is actually a strategy that has been tried and tested throughout the world. And I think is the exact kind of expression of political power that doesn't wait for change, but actually demands concessions from a government that is systemically wired, whose modus operandi is to not deliver those concessions no matter the impact on everyday working class people. After a nearly two-year delay, the Ford report has been released. Headed by QC Martin Ford, the review was tasked with investigating another report written under Corbyn's leadership that detailed subversion by Labour Party staff, or alleged subversion, I should say. It was widely known as the Labour leaks, which we, we covered well on this show. Now, the remit of Ford's review included the circumstances in which the Labour leaks report was written, and the circumstances of it being leaked, as well as the many claims it made. And perhaps surprisingly, as this report was commissioned under Keir Starmer, Ford vindicates much of what that original leaked report stated. For example, you might remember that some of the most explosive parts of the Labour leaks report involved WhatsApp groups messages from senior anti-Corbyn staff in HQ. They included comments by party managers that Diane Abbott literally made them sick, that she was truly repulsive and a very angry woman. And comments about Carrie Murphy, Corbyn's chief of staff, that she was a, quote, crazy woman and a, quote, bitch face cow. Of the leaked WhatsApp exchanges, the Ford report says, It has been put to us by a number of witnesses. The extracts of the messages quoted in the leaked report were cherry-picked and selectively edited, such that the quotes that appear in the leaked report are both unrepresentative and misleading. Having reviewed the transcripts and considered evidence from many of those involved, we do not agree. We find that the messages on the SMT, so senior management team WhatsApp, reveal deplorably factional and insensitive and at times discriminatory attitudes expressed by many of the party's most senior staff. The report also said the criticisms of Diane Abbott are not simply a harsh response to perceived poor performance. They are expressions of visceral disgust, drawing on racist tropes, and they bear little resemblance to the criticisms of white male MPs elsewhere in the messages. All incredibly damning there. 
in another passage of the report. So this is the, the Ford report. It says, We have taken into account that many of the comments were made in jest and were not intended seriously or literally, contrary on occasion to the leaked report's framing of them. That does not, in our view, negate all criticism of them. It is, or should be, self-evident that saying that you hope someone has been run over by a train or that someone deserves to die in a fire is reprehensible, even if you were joking. For party staff to consider such jokes acceptable in relation to colleagues or party members suggests to us that they had become detached from both professional and personal norms. We're going to go through multiple key parts of the Ford report. That was just the parts that concerned offensive and discriminatory attitudes among senior staff. Before we go on to those other parts, I want to bring in my colleague Aaron Bastani. And for his thoughts on the Ford report, you know, as those um, quotes I've just read out suggest, it's quite punchy, isn't it? It doesn't read as a whitewash. No, it's certainly not a whitewash, Michael. It's very, in, in parts, I think that, that for me was a real knockout. The one you said, for instance, about the senior management team, that was a real set of knockout sentences. I thought that was the, the paragraph for me that really just cut through the media bullshit and was very clear. It is, however, a legal document. I mean, in particular, the recommendations are quite anodyne. But what do you expect? You know, you're not going to have a QC start declaring that people have a bottom that they're cancelled and that it's disgraceful and they should be ostracised. That's the language of the wingnut labour right and of the media. It's not the language, generally speaking, of, of lawyers and, and legal inquiries led by QCs. So there is some ambiguity. Obviously, I think you've had to please and appease multiple stakeholders. I'm sure that there have been multiple edits. But you're absolutely right. On four or five hugely important topics, all of which have been really mocked by the media, the verdict is absolutely clear. And I guess we'll go over this, you know, over the next five, 10, 15 minutes. Any one of those paragraphs, including that one you've just read there, Michael, about the senior management team and how the leaked WhatsApp messages, which we first reported on Navarro Media, was actually representative of a toxic and, quote, discriminatory culture at the top of the organization. If I had said that on the BBC or Sky News, uh, I would have been mocked and laughed at and jeered, not just by the other guests, but often the host too. And so what I think is super interesting here is, like you say, the often punchy, not always, often punchy language that comes through here and how much at odds it is with the lazy, pedestrian, low information analysis we often expect from mainstream media. Let's talk next about anti-Semitism, one of the key topics of the Ford report and of course you know, how it was handled. As you'll remember, during Corbyn's leadership, the Labour right claimed that he was responsible for an outbreak of rampant anti-Semitism in the party and that he was also responsible for it going unpunished. In contrast, the Labour leaks report said that while anti-Semitism was a problem, many of the troubles the party had in addressing it were down to subversion from the party's right. Now, the Ford report was tasked with adjudicating these competing claims, and it seems to really have decided to both sides the issue. So the Ford report reads, The evidence clearly demonstrated that a vociferous faction in the party sees any issues regarding anti-Semitism as exaggerated by the right to embarrass the left. It was, of course, also true that some opponents of Jeremy Corbyn saw the issue of anti-Semitism as a means of attacking him. Thus, rather than confront the paramount need to deal with the profoundly serious issue of anti-Semitism in the party, both factions treated it as a factional weapon. But, you know, everyone had a little bit to blame. It's not particularly ex explanatory in that sense, to my mind at least. Ford's judgment with respect to media reporting on the row, though, was more unequivocal. So we'll go to the Ford Report's verdict in one moment. First, let's just remind you of the most impactful coverage of Labour and anti-Semitism during Corbyn's tenure. 
It was a BBC Panorama documentary hosted by John Ware. Corbyn and his office have repeatedly said that when party members are accused of anti-Semitism, they don't interfere in the disciplinary process. Indeed, the Labour Party said any such suggestion is categorically untrue. But that doesn't seem to be the case. In an email, Mr Corbyn's Director of Communications, Seamus Milne, asked for a review of the disciplinary process into anti-Semitic complaints. There was a risk, he said, of muddling up political disputes with racism. The Labour Party told us this was not a request for any kind of formal review. How did you interpret that email from Mr Milne? The same way that all staff in Labour's head office did, which is that this was the leader's office requesting to be uh, involved directly in the disciplinary process. This is not a helpful suggestion, it is an instruction. But it's framed as a suggestion. Yes, it's all framed as a suggestion. But this is not some junior staff at the leader's office. This is Seamus Milne, Director of Communications, part of Jeremy Corbyn's inner circle. He is probably one of, if not the most influential person within the leader's office. And in that context, when he says, I think we need to review this process going forward, that isn't a suggestion. That's him instructing what he expects to happen without needing to say it. The leader's office did not intervene. These former disaffected employees sought the view of staff in the leader's office, which was complied with in good faith. These disaffected former officials include those who have always opposed Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, worked to actively undermine it, and have both personal and political axes to grind. The claims in that documentary that Corbyn allies interfered in disciplinary processes and the implication was to let people off, they were incredibly damaging. And I remember the period well. Criticising the documentary was almost impossible in the mainstream media. The moment you did it, and we all did it at Navarra, you were dismissed as a conspiracy theorist and an apologist for anti-Semitism. Well, let's look at what the Ford Report had to say on that topic and on the media coverage of this issue. During spring 2018, the period on which much of the reporting has focused, Lottos, that's leader of the opposition staff, provided input into specific cases after it was sought, sometimes insistently by HQ staff, who refused to proceed until they had it. HQ staff say that they were forced into making those requests by persistent offline interference by Lotto, which they wanted to bring into the open. Whatever HQ's motives, however, we find that Lotto staff responded to the requests for the most part reasonably and in good faith. We note that their responses were subsequently used to form the basis of wholly misleading media reports, which suggested that Lotto staff had aggressively imposed themselves on the process against HQ's wishes. Aaron, what's your take on how the Ford review or the Ford report has, has addressed the anti-Semitism row? On the specifics of the, um, the John Ware Panorama documentary, Michael, I mean, this is utterly extraordinary. This is a stake through the heart of the reputation of John Ware and of also the BBC, I believe. Many of us, many of the people watching this, grew up with a great deal of respect for the BBC, but particularly for its investigative journalism. At the time, of course, ITV also did that very well, the Cook Report and so on. But Panorama was really something of a gold standard when it came to investigative journalism, original news gathering, breaking hugely important stories. What we've got with John Ware and Panorama and this hit job fundamentally on the Labour Party 
was nothing more than an intentionally, I believe, misrepresentative story of the facts. And it took a QC and it took this two-year process, highly legal, highly formal, out of the glare of the public eye to make that clear. Now, to return back again to this appalling Panorama documentary, which I think really does undermine Panorama's reputation from here on in, I will never trust it ever again. It was nominated for a BAFTA, Michael, this documentary. This mercilessly unfair, unscrupulous piece of half-truths, which clearly started with an agenda, I believe. I think that's quite obvious to anybody watching the people being interviewed and how they're treated, the leading questions by John Ware. This was nominated for a BAFTA. Multiple criticisms were made. Complaints were submitted. Of course, you can submit complaints to the BBC. All of them rejected. Complaints made to Ofcom, the broadcast regulator. All of them rejected. I really do think this is an extraordinary example of political groupthink, uh, not just in the media class, but in the political class too, and how this really overlapped for a really long period of time. And like you say, we published two articles that really stick out in my mind, which were very strong criticisms of this documentary and of the people it was interviewing and say, saying it wasn't particularly fair, it was highly partial, it really didn't live up to the highest journalistic standards you would expect of the BBC. We published two pieces on that just for publishing them. People were trying to cancel us. People were saying that we were the bottom. How could you share something by Navarra Media? They're problematic. Why? They questioned the John Ware Panorama documentary. Hello. When did this become a thing? That Sorry, it's now the bottom. It's now unacceptable to, to question a Panorama documentary. So to return to your question about anti-Semitism, Labour and the anti-Semitism issue, crisis, however you want to sort of construct the words, this was never going to be addressed. It couldn't be addressed. Many people driving this in order to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not saying there was no anti-Semitism. There was. I've written about this many, many times, but it was also instrumentally used by a number of people. A number of people never wanted it to be sold for quite clear reasons, because they viewed it explicitly as an Achilles heel that could undermine and undo the Labour leadership. And that's people tweeting about it online. Labour organisers, people who are quite active in local CRPs and whatnot. So I think, it's a, I think it's a shame. I think it's sad. And I think it's a tragedy that what should have been a, a really important collective moment for education and learning around anti-Semitism, which is often a, a form of racism which can be insidious, half understood. People might perpetrate it without even realising. I think what could have been a really awesome collective learning experience was wasted because some very malicious, malevolent people, many of whom are active in the media, didn't want that. They wanted to misrepresent and defame a political leader because they didn't agree with a number of his policies. We should probably say, because he is quite litigious, that I, I have every confidence John Ware would vociferously deny that he made that documentary of any bad intentions or of any agenda and that it was you know, purely um, all from an objective journalistic standpoint, although, of course, um, I wholly agree with you, Aaron, about the output. Um, I think it was a pretty shoddy piece of journalism. On the topic of journalism, let's discuss how the media have covered the Ford report itself. So The Guardian focused on the both sides' narrative in the report. Their headline reads, anti-Semitism issue used as factional weapon in Labour, report finds. And they've said the report commissioned by Keir Starmer highlights toxicity on both sides under Jeremy Corbyn. Others seem to go straight to comments from the Labour leadership instead of reading the document itself. This was Paul War's first comment on the report. He's the chief political commentator 
at the I newspaper. So he said, new from Labour, the Ford report completely debunks the conspiracy theory that the 2017 general election was somehow deliberately sabotaged by Labour Party staff opposed to Corbyn's leadership. The report, in fact, confirmed that right-wing staff diverted over 100 grand of funds away from winnable seats. Um, I suppose what's being drawn upon there is that the report said, oh, that wasn't necessarily them intentionally um, trying to throw the election. So it seems like a slanted takeaway to me. And slanted takeaways were very much forthcoming from the Labour leadership. A spokesperson said, the Ford report details a party that was out of control. Keir Starmer is now in control and has made real progress in ridding the party of the destructive factionalism and unacceptable culture that did so much damage previously and contributed to our defeat in 2019. Unsurprisingly, no one in the mainstream media has picked up on the fact that Starmer has only rid the party of factionalism in the sense that he has brutally, completely purged one faction. (laughs) So it wasn't like, oh, let's move beyond factionalism. So let's get rid of factionalism by completely expelling the left on completely spurious grounds. It's not anything Corbyn would have got away with. For Keir Starmer, that's completely fine. No one is going to say a thing. Now, Aaron, I think all of this journalism uh, on this report is pretty lazy. At the same time, I do think the, the flaw of the report is that it kind of left that option open for both the Labour leadership and the media because a lot of it is sort of saying, oh, this was just two sides who couldn't see beyond their political disagreements. And it kind of ignores the fact that one had a democratic mandate One was trying to bring back a democratically elected leader and one was trying to firefight because it was being brought down from every direction. Yeah, it's nonsense, Michael. I mean, clearly, it's a legal report looking into a political party. In a political party, a leader is given a mandate to do certain things, you know, um, and if they're not allowed to execute the mandate they're given by the membership, whether that be for internal change, change in political direction, change in policy, change in personnel, if HQ, other MPs, if they're trying to sabotage that, that leader has a mandate to do something about them. So I, I agree with you that both sides doesn't work. I do think it's accurate to say that ultimately by 2018, there was a, it was completely impossible to address the situation and that that was, that was true. That is absolutely true. Where I would depart from the report is it was, it was impossible for it to be anything but that. We have to remember we've had two years now of Ian McNichol and these losers, frankly. By the way, Ian McNichol, wow. Who comes out of the Ford report any worse than Ian McNichol? It's hard to think of anybody, anybody frankly. They've tried to rehabilitate him in recent years, the former general secretary. He was canvassing with David Evans last year in the local elections, by the way. He was meeting the Israeli Labour Party, seemingly on official business for the UK Labour Party uh, just a few months ago. He does, you know, media requests them sometimes. I sometimes see him popping up on, on Sky News. So these, these people come out of it very, very poorly. And I think that fundamentally, Jeremy Corbyn should have been more ruthless and harsher with them. That doesn't mean he's as bad as them. It means he's acting on a democratic mandate from the membership. But look, this is a this is a, a legal a legal report. It's very loyally, and in terms of its you know in terms of how it understands due process, it's going to treat this more as a kind of set of bureaucratic problems. And of course, politics always supersedes bureaucracy. That's the point. It's a political party. You're meant to be acting on the political wishes of the membership. If that's being obstructed. You should be able to treat people in a certain way, which basically says, get your ass out of the door. So, yes, I think it's weak on that. But on on the really, really big stories, which, like you say, have been shamelessly sidestepped by much of the media, um, I, I think it is really, really good. You know, let's look at what it's talking about here. Misallocation of funds, sending funds to constituencies which the leader's office wasn't aware of, a culture of anti-black racism, obstruction of promotion of people from minorities, the senior management team being really nasty and quote-unquote 
in engaging in discriminatory attitudes. The fact that the senior, I mean, my God, Michael, the senior leadership of the Labour Party in 2015 and 2016 intentionally tried to undermine the internal democratic processes of the Labour Party. All of those points I've just said, five or six points I've just said there, there's, there's several more too. If you were to go on Sky News or BBC and say that, well, in 2015, Ian McNichol tried to undermine, tried to rig the leadership race, tried to do the same thing in 2016. If you said that on Sky, they'd laugh at you. They'd chortle. And yet we know it's true. And what we've had on the left and what we've had on Navarro Media for the last seven years, effectively, is people saying that you're ridiculous, you're talking nonsense, this is a conspiracy theory. And they tried to do that again yesterday. Paul War, Rachel Kearmouth, Hippocrera. But unfortunately, it couldn't work because there is this 138-page document that anybody can read, and they can see that they're talking out of their backsides. So, you know, strangely, we often think of these kinds of documents as, as not helpful for the left. You know, the left say we win political battles on, you know, a political line rather than appealing to bureaucratic procedure. Often true. That's not the case with the Ford Report. I think it's a really, really useful document. Finally, I find it utterly perplexing that the NEC saw this the first time after two years yesterday, they didn't have time to read it. So you have an all-day NEC meeting talking about the Ford Report. They've not read the Ford Report. They're only reading the recommendations. And by the way, David Evans' time as General Secretary of the Labour Party, how he's behaved and the organisational change he's overseen is completely at odds with the recommendations. One of the recommendations is you need to detach the sort of functions of the leader's office from Party HQ. These should be separate sort of bureaucracies administered separately, insulated from one another. Well, David Evans has been firing people from Labour HQ and duplicating the roles within the leader's office because then they can hire people who are more politically favourable and they can get rid of people who they view as too left-wing, which is, of course, 90% of uh, Labour members and activists uh, right now. So the recommendations aren't productive for them either. I know I said I'd finish on that, but there was one more thing which did make me laugh, Michael, was the criticism of the Jewish Labour movement trainings you know, it said these trainings aren't particularly good. They should be open to constructive criticism. At which point, of course, the Board of Deputies, the Jewish Labour Movement, Mike Katz, these people are sort of crazed. You know, they get upset. They say, how dare you criticise our training? And we're almost at the point where they are so outlandish and so beyond the realm of even reason or logic or normality. You know, they're sort of itching to say that, well, if you criticise our training, that, mean, that means you're problematic, you're racist, because you've criticised our training. You know, there is a clear, unhinged, id poll underpinning to all of this. And it's not coming from the left. It's not coming from some undergraduate students. They're not saying, it's not some, you know, sociology reading group from Goldsmith saying, if you don't agree with us, you're a racist, you're cancelled, you, you don't deserve a public platform. No, it's several quite significant civil society organisations in the UK who right now are leading the disciplinary processes of the Labour Party. It's remarkable. And ultimately, when you are this ridiculous and this at odds with reality and you find yourself seemingly now trying to cancel Martin Ford, a QC, yeah, you politically run out of road. And I think ultimately people start looking at you who maybe were allies or sympathetic and think, this is a little bit strange. I'm not going to carry on with the charade anymore. I'm certainly not going to potentially sink any political capital into people this odd, which is, which is how they look. So immensely grateful for the Ford report. And I think it is extraordinary that these revelations never would have come to light. They never would have come to light 
without independent media, particularly Navarra media. Other, other outlets too would have covered it if we hadn't. I do think that's extraordinary, Michael. You know, how many other stories in the last 20, 30, 40 years of this magnitude, these kinds of revelations, have simply not seen the light of day because legacy media didn't want to cover them? which is why I'm so grateful to all our supporters. You, you've allowed us to break this massive story, which gave us the Ford report yesterday and confirmed so much of what we already knew. But now it's in black and white and it's rubber stamped with a QC's name. So thank you. He doesn't say explicitly, but I think another group of people, the Ford report vindicates, is the people who leaked the original Labour leaks report. Because I mean, yeah. it's very clear in this, that he thinks a lot of the allegations are important and a lot of the evidence used is you know, in the public interest, right? So I know there were criticisms, you know, the, the name should have been redacted or some of the names should have been redacted or whatever. But I'm very, very grateful for whoever it was that leaked that report, because I think our understanding of British democracy is much stronger for it. You know, and I, I find it weird that sort of most of political journalism sees it as some kind of taboo to leak a report such as this. We're journalists. We're supposed to like it when things are leaked, which shine a light on stuff which would otherwise go unnoticed yet because it's damaging to the Labour right, because it's on this touchy issue of anti-Semitism. Suddenly, no one wanted to report on this thing. They're like, oh, it shouldn't have been leaked in the first place. You're supposed to be journalists. What's going on? It didn't just commend the leaker. It also said the people compiling the report were impartial. They weren't sectarian. And they were often critical of Jeremy Corbyn. And they were diligent. And these were honest people. You know, and if you'd listen to mainstream media coverage of this, the people compiling the report were nasty, awful, barbaric, disgusting, reprehensible. Actually, again, the QC examining all of this evidence in the light of day said something completely different which tells you something quite important, I think, about how, how little you should take seriously the diktats of the, of the, the London Big House pundits and, and legacy media. I think, as you've indicated in your answers, Aaron, there is too much in this report that we can cover in one section. So I've got you back on the show on Friday. We will be covering some more aspects of the Ford report then. We've been waiting for it for long enough um, that we can talk for it over more than one show. But thank you so much for joining me this evening. I should also inform the audience that Aaron Bastani has a great article on the Royal Media website at the moment about the Ford Report, so do check that out. Um, I think we've got quite a lot of coverage um, on our article section on the Ford Report, so do go to navarromedia.com. Next story. Temperatures in England hit 40.3 degrees Celsius on Tuesday, which blew out of the water the previous record set only three years earlier. The immediate impacts were stark. Anyone tuning into Sky News as they tried to desperately stay cool would have watched reportage like this. This is in Wennington in Greater London, residential uh, area ablaze there. Uh, London Fire Brigade say they have 15 engines and 100 firefighters tackling this blaze, which is on the green in Wennington, uh, Greater London. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, says uh, the London Fire Brigade has just declared a major incident in response to a huge surge in fires across the capital today. This is critical. Uh, the London Fire Brigade is under immense pressure. Please be safe. I'm in touch with the commissioner and we'll share updates when I have them. Um, London Fire Brigade simultaneously fighting this uh, fire in Wennington, Greater London, and also another blaze in Croydon today. The London Fire Brigade received more than 1,600 calls for assistance on Tuesday, which compares to 300 to 350 on a normal day. All in all, the London Fire Brigade said it was their busiest day since the Second World War. So how have our political and media classes reacted to this dire warning about the impacts of climate change? The wildfires appear to have woken up our moronic right-wing press to the concept that heat can cause problems, 
For example, this was the front page of the Express on Monday, reporting on the forecasted 40 degree temperatures. The paper declared, it's not the end of the world, just stay cool and carry on. But by Wednesday, their tone had switched to this. Britain burns in 40.3 degrees Celsius heat. Wildfires rage on hottest day in history. The Daily Mail had a similar about turn on Tuesday. They ran with this. Sunny day snowflake Britain had a meltdown. Inside the paper, an editorial complained that listening to apocalyptic climate change pundits in the BBC, you'd think Britain was about to spontaneously combust. But by Wednesday, they led with this. Nightmare of the wildfires. Evidently, it took living through 40-degree temperatures for the Daily Mail to work out there is a relationship between heat and fire. On that topic of right-wing idiocy, our very own Ash Sarkar did a pretty good job at battling it head-on in the public sphere. She debated right-wing loudmouth Mike Parry on the hottest day of the year. Many people accuse me of being a climate change denier, which I'm not. I know that we've got to adjust the way we, we run the world and the way we live in our own societies because climate is changing. But it's not changing for one reason only, the one reason only being how wicked man is to set fire to the planet in all sorts of different ways. And the reason I think Prince Charles has been so effective is because he's a moderate. And he's talked gently about it and quietly and slowly. You know, he hasn't gone out onto the streets and started gluing his face to tarmac. And he hasn't been pushing big pink boats through city centres and stopping people going about their everyday life. So more people listen to Prince Charles when he speaks than listen to all these, you know, eccentric people who go around trying to stop the world from moving and causing pollution, all that kind of stuff than listen to Prince Charles. Prince Charles has done a good job, but I do not believe that the climate crisis is only man-made, and I believe that net zero target 2050 is a completely ridiculous target, which will ruin all our lives if it's ever achieved. Sometimes when I do this job, I wonder if even participating in the media is the right thing to do, because we, sometimes, we somehow manage to have the stupidest possible conversation about the single most serious issue that's facing us as a species. 2050 is too late, all right? There's a reason why the UN climate reports are saying that we've got 10 years to take mm. meaningful action. And actually, if we had taken action in the 1970s, in the 1980s, even in the 1990s, we wouldn't have to make such drastic adjustments to how we live our lives. It's because we've wasted all this time mm. having totally pointless arguments, talking about the methods people use to raise awareness rather than the thing they're trying to draw our attention to, mm. that we've ended up, I think, in such a dire position. I mean, we're struggling in 40 degree heat, but by no means is Britain the worst affected. Where my family are from in Bangladesh, yeah. you have thousands of people dying every year because of arsenic poisoning. The reason why there's arsenic poisoning is they're having to dig up so much earth to build dams to stop the sea levels rising and coming up yeah. the delta. Right? That is a reality yeah. that's that people are facing right now. And instead, we are going on about gluing faces or pink boats rather than going, hang on, what's the issue so and what needs to be done about Ash, it? I mean, basically, Ash, you are agreeing with Charles here. We should have listened to him. But he started talking about this when he was 21 years old about plastic pollution. So you're actually agreeing with him. We, we should have listened to the scientists who are sounding the alarm, the environmental activists. Who said, well, look, I, if Charles was one voice in a chorus, fine. Mm. I've got problems with his use of helicopters, private jets, whatever. But this isn't about an individual. This is the fact that we have 
a media conversation which props up billionaire and oligarch polluters and allows them to get away with boiling our planet to a crisp just Actually, to make a few a people made? richer. Is it only man who is, you know, damaging the planet? Is it not meteorological considerations as well? The fact that the Romans were allowed to, were able to... This is what I mean by having the, yeah. the, the stupidest possible conversation. We yeah. don't have control over sunspots. We have control over how much fossil fuels Yeah, but burn. sunspots happen. And, sun, and sunspots, funny you should mention, I was going to bring them up, affect the climate of the Earth. Again, and, and again. The, and and there was a mini control. ice age. There was a mini ice we age between 1300 and 1600, right? We the Romans did. grew vineyards on Hadrian's Wall. Only it's cyclical. It is cyclical. I mean, you, you, what, what you're doing is effectively defecating in the public swimming pool of the national conversation and trying okay. to muddy the water. No, I'm not. I'm putting facts forward. I'm not. I'm putting facts forward. They are facts, right? Totally and you totally ignore them. You won't, you won't respond to me talking about uh, olive groves in Northumberland or the Ice Age, 1300 Because that's got nothing to do. Hello, right, before... Now, I have no words to respond to that. So, Dahlia, I'm going to call you in for help here. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Britain hits 40.3 degrees and Ash still has to go on television debating whether there were vineyards in England in the Roman period. You know, I've, I've said this before and, I, and I'm going to say it again. In Britain, we often feel quite proud of ourselves that we don't have the problem of outright climate denialism, which we see across the pond. Uh, a lot more frequently. You know, it's unlikely that on mainstream media in this country, you will have someone come in and outright say climate change is a hoax. But we do have a problem that is equally as dangerous and with the same overall consequence as climate denialism, and that is climate deflection. And this segment was a perfect example of that. Because even though we might accept the basic truth of climate change, you know, broadly, we are wasting these precious years that we have to take action. We are, you know, we have fewer than 10 years now to prevent some of the gravest excesses of climate breakdown. And we're also wasting the precious minutes of media coverage that we have. You know, the media doesn't dedicate a lot of time to this issue, despite it being the most important issue of our, of our time. But the few minutes that it does dedicate we end up, instead of using that time to talk about, okay, what action do we need to take in the face of this reality? How are we going to decarbonize our, our economy whilst protecting the livelihoods of energy workers and those who rely on the energy sector for their livelihoods in a variety of direct and indirect ways? How are we going to reorganize society and invest in the kinds of infrastructures of resilience to protect the most vulnerable and the most exposed from the worst excesses of climate breakdown that are already underway. Instead of having these really important conversations, we are instead dragging intelligent people like Ash, who would have a lot to contribute to that discussion, having to drag them in to the most facile conversations that I have ever heard about how, oh, you know, a climate emergency, it, it kind of bums me out to talk about that or why can't you just hold my hand and, you know, stroke me on the hair while, while you tell me about how, you know, the, the, the climate is breaking down and all of the knock-on impacts of that and getting wound up and more angry at protesters who are taking action to try and draw our attention to this issue and pressure politicians to take the action that is needed, having more contempt for them than for the oil execs that actually put us in this crisis in the first place. And the media completely indulges that. You know, when you actually watch the, the full clip 
we actually cut just before it got to that. The moderator, who is supposed to facilitate this discussion between these two so-called sides, although obviously the two sides are basically reality and complete delusion, instead of doing that, she makes this really irritating dig at Ash where she goes, okay, okay, you know, before we start gluing ourselves to to the set or something, she says something along those lines, she references gluing you know, gluing yourself to things, which is clearly a dig at Ash, who is aligned, obviously, more with those who are taking direct action for climate justice. It shows how the norms of these spaces are to indulge the absolute delusion that is coming from that other guest to act as if that is an acceptable thing to be talking about, an acceptable thing to be drawing our attention to in this moment, rather than actually starting from the position of we are in this emergency. These are the things that need to happen. How are we going to get there? And that is why the climate movement is completely correct to actually identify the media, the mainstream media in this country as a key stumbling block to climate action uh, in this strategy, in their strategy, and that this media must be dramatically transformed um, as a result. Because it's also worth mentioning that despite what that other guest is saying, Prince Charles is actually not the reason that we're talking about climate breakdown. We are talking about climate breakdown because of the organizing and the direct action of protesters that has been taking place for decades now to finally bring this onto the agenda. So even on that topic, um, he's wrong. And it was weird that they used that moment to try and discipline Ash into, you know, giving Prince Charles some credit. It was just an incredibly bizarre and devastating use of, of very precious airtime for an incredibly important um, point. And Ash did a great job with the tools that she had and the space that she had, but it's just, it, it's just a losing battle. Um, it feels like a losing battle in the media at this point. You know, I always think the funny thing about people who sort of talk about Prince Charles or David Attenborough, like it's, it's sort of saying, look, we all recognize that we're not doing enough about climate action, but the people who are most effective are David Attenborough and Prince Charles. Well, why can't you just talk reasonably like them? Well, because I'm not David Attenborough or Prince Charles. <laughs> you know, if, if you're just an ordinary person on the street and, and you want to get involved in the very, very necessary struggle to get the government to speed up when it comes to climate action, not everyone can be born into the royal family. And so whenever they say something incredibly moderate, people listen to them. So other people have to be a bit more creative. You can't just sort of scold people for not already being incredibly famous. It seems very bizarre to me. We're going to move on from media pundits to scientists. They seem pretty worried about what the heat wave tells us about climate change. Professor Peter Stott works for the Met Office and published research in 2020 showing there was a chance of the UK hitting 40 degrees due to climate change. But he told The Guardian this, We calculated it as a relatively low likelihood, a roughly 1 in 100 chance, albeit that those chances are increasing rapidly all the time with continued warming. Breaking 40 degrees Celsius today is very worrying. We've never seen anything like this in the UK, and it could be that the risk of such extreme heat is even greater than our previous calculations showed. Now, I found that quote really, really terrifying. Normally, when a, a heat record is broken, you'd expect it to be, you know, beat by 0.1 of a percent or, sorry, 0.1 degree or 0.2 degree or whatever, you know, it'd be marginally higher than the previous one. This smashed the records by 1.5 degrees. Now, that is terrifying. And, you know, even the people who had models that people thought were at the scary end of models, you know, saying 40 degrees in Britain is possible, they're now saying, God, I thought it was possible, but I didn't think it was going to happen in two years time. You know, 
Dahlia, I, I want your take on this. Projections, you know, from just three years ago are already being overtaken by events. It's scary, isn't it? And most climate projections do tend to be uh, conservative estimates because when they do otherwise, they get called alarmist by, by the media and by politicians. I didn't think that the UK would be facing such explicit and extreme weather events so soon. There's gen- there was generally a consensus that you know, the UK through, through a complete accident of geography is, is fairly, is considered to be one of the more sheltered countries. And um, when it comes to extreme weather events, of course, when you look at countries outside of the UK, countries that both through geography, like geographical reasons, for example, if they're a low lying island, that they are more susceptible to the impacts of climate breakdown. But also, more importantly, through the fact that because we have an unjust global political economy, they are unable to invest in the kinds of infrastructures of resilience and protection to actually, you know, protect their populations from the impacts of climate breakdown that are already underway. And so in those countries, you are seeing the, the knock-on impacts of climate breakdown, which are not just ecological, but are, as we're seeing, infrastructural, social, political, economic, that all of these knock-on effects are, are more severe and are happening at a much quicker pace than has been predicted by um, scientists. Because obviously, the impacts of climate change, you can't just understand them in sort of scientific and measurable ways. It's also, it's, it's holistic, the climate is a holistic entity and it has impacts depending on political and social and economic decisions. So, you know, we are already seeing far sooner than we originally thought. We are seeing entire communities being displaced by climate breakdown. We are seeing country, entire countries having their economies set back one generation um, by one single extreme weather event. So just one storm setting back a country's development process by an entire generation. So from a global perspective, the fact that the impacts of climate change, when you look holistically, tend to outpace scientific predictions, that's kind of already known. And, and again, this is where the media is failing us so dramatically, because this heat wave in the UK should have been a teaching moment, not only of the impending reality of climate change, but also, and the fact that things are changing more intensely and more quickly than we had previously anticipated. But mostly, it should have been a teaching moment as to how sensitive our infrastructures are to climate change, to climate breakdown, how vulnerable our basic systems are to extreme weather. This is not just a case of uncomfortable heat. Uh, this is not just a case of, oh, for a few nights, we couldn't get a good night's sleep. Our motorways are on fire. Our homes are on fire. Our public health systems are struggling to cope with the physical impacts of extreme heat. These knock-on effects are very, very real and our basic systems that tick on in the background every day without us realizing fall apart um, or at least greatly, like are greatly interrupted by even the earliest signs of, of weather distress. And again, instead of having conversations about how we make those infrastructures more resilient in the face of what is to come, we're spending time talking about vineyards in Roman times or whatever. And that is, again, another impact of, of climate deflectionism. Well, things like the BBC was the most I've heard them talk about climate change. I mean, it, in one way, it's why, in a way, it's a relief to me 
the sort of extreme weather is also hitting rich countries? Because my biggest fear was that extreme weather would only hit poor countries and then everyone in the rich world would just ignore it. There is some consolation to the fact that it's in the West and in the rich world, we are already seeing the effects of climate change because I think it will make action easier. But I do think you're, you're right on all of those broader points. Dahlia, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And this show will be back on Friday at 7 p.m. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.